and welcome to the Squaw Mates Podcast! This is a totally serious podcast where we talk about herpetology and reptiles and other things. And oh, oh, we also talk about amphibians. That's very important. It does include both. Um, we do not, however, talk about herpes viruses, except, or maybe on, maybe later on, we'll actually talk about herpes viruses because they're quite important in some reptiles and things. But anyway, this is the Squamates podcast. This is episode two. Uh, and it's very exciting. So I am one of your three co-hosts. My name is Mark D. Schertz, and I'm a herpetologist and a PhD candidate, and I am joined by my two co-hosts. I'm uh, Ethan Kosak. I am a cartoonist and a reptile amphibian enthusiast. And I'm Gabriel Lugeto, and I'm a paleo artist and scientific illustrator, and I used to work in herpetology, but not anymore. Yeah, it's a very sad story. Um, so, uh, so as I mentioned, this is the second episode, and uh, approximately one month ago, we aired the very first episode of the show, and I think I can uh, speak for the three of us when I say we were very, very nervous about how the reception was going to be. First of all, because the episode was very long, and secondly, because this is completely new to all of us, uh, and I personally was shocked by how great the reception has been. I mean, so much very extremely kind and generous feedback. We are currently a five-star show I on paid them iTunes. All. Mark, I paid them yeah. all. <laughs> I know. So I figured it out. You know, we, we have eight five-star reviews on iTunes, but I did at least two. And... <laughs> <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Um, it, it was very surprising. I'm, I'm very happy with the response we got. And yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's been it's been lovely. We've had even reviews on the Facebook page. We have a Facebook page now, so you can go and like us there. And I didn't know that there were like Facebook reviews and things, but we had some nice ones. Some uh, practically monosyllabic ones. Others that had you know more than four words. And uh, yeah, so that's been really cool. And um, we're now on all of the things. So we're even on Instagram now. And as I said, we have a Facebook page. So we're basically on all of your social media, which is quite cool. Indeed. And uh, we also wanted to give a brief shout out to, um, to Darren and... John Conway. And John, John Conway, yeah. exactly. The superhero hater. Um, <laughs> who have been um, not only extremely kind to us on, on social media and, and all of that stuff, uh, but also who were, uh, they even mentioned us in a very, um, let's say, bizarre <laughs> opening <laughs> to their latest episode, um, which we're, we're super glad about. So, uh, yes, we are in a little bit of competition with them. And yes, this is, in fact, the Ooze Tet stacked up. But, um, yeah, we, we don't want to encroach on other people. Also, uh, a shout out to uh, Herp Highlights, um, which is another great herpetology show, which you should go listen to, um, who also mentioned us in one of their recent episodes. Uh, in fact, both of their, their last two episodes, which was really cool. Yes, so, thank you. Uh, the feedback so far has been really great. Um, and we've had some... I, I would have to say that they all have been um, big inspirations to us to do this podcast so 
Absolutely. These people were really instrumental. We are um, not trying to steal their thunder. We we want to work synergistically with them and not, you know, take over the internet completely, at least not at this early stage. So <laughs> um, we also got a bit of uh, a bit of uh, constructive criticism. Um, first of all, some people were not not clear what the title of the show means. Um, my dear listeners, <laughs> Squamates uh, pertains to the, the group of um, reptiles that are lepidosaurs but are not, not rhynchocephalians. And it is a pun because we are mates, that is to say friends, who are talking about squamates. And yeah, so, so the title of the show is a pun. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really glad that we dissected the joke on air. I, I am I'm glad as well. I think it's very important that we do that going in so that we can sort of set the set the atmosphere for this. Jokes are episode. jokes are much funnier when you explain them. Oh, so much funnier. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like that when there's a sort of a plot line, there's a clear denouement afterward. You know. It's it's very good. Yes. Yeah. Okay, we also fucked up a little bit, and so this is the part of the show right at the beginning where we get out of the way the fact that we fucked up. You could call it F.U., I suppose, but <laughs> <laughs> we might get into some copyright problems. F.U., Mark. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, fuck you, too. <laughs> um, so the fuck-ups were basically... Uh, Gabriel misused the word basil a few times, as did I at least once, so it's not entirely him. Uh, basil is a term that, when you're talking about a tree, should be used really to refer to extinct, deep lineages, and anything that's living today is not basil, by definition, uh, but it is in fact basally diverged, so that is something to be aware of when you're talking about trees. Also, uh, the levels were a little bit off, apparently, in some places, and people mentioned the fact that Ethan breathes relatively, <laughs> relatively loudly. <laughs> okay, so, so I have allergies pretty bad. Exactly. I'm sorry. He has an excuse. I he will stop breathing for the remainder of this episode. <laughs> exactly. So uh, the other issue was that the episode was very long, and as I see it right now, we seem to be on a par for the same problem. So <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to no. try and keep it short. Our, our goal episode length is about one and a half hours. Um, if this happens to be a bit longer, we apologize. We still are working on it. So just bear with. Um, on the other hand, we had some people who were saying that two and a half hours was perfect. So... Um, that was that was very nice, but we it, will try it, and keep them shorter because we, one and a half hours is nice. I think me. I'm willing to admit that it was a bit ambitious. It was to, a bit ambitious to tackle all of what we tackled. So we did for the people who are listening to this as their very first episode. To give you a brief recap of what we did in the last episode, we talked about all of herpetological history ever, and then Gabriel <laughs> very <laughs> intensively went through literally every reptile and amphibian that exists today and their extinct ancestors. Or try to. Try to. Except for snakes. More, I gotta say, it sounds even more ridiculous when you say it out loud like that, but we did yes, it. Well. <laughs> so, it, it was quite fun, but it did get a bit long in the tooth toward the end. And um, the final fuck-up that I'd like to mention was the fact that I incorrectly said that I, well, I said that I had doubts about the validity of these new giant salamander species in China. 
Um, I really should have read the paper before slagging it off. And that's a good, that's uh, I a did. Good, a good rule of thumb. It is a good rule of thumb. <laughs> you know, sometimes you read the abstracts and you're like, nah. Um, but this one, I was betrayed by my own uh, tendencies, uh, which was which was relatively stupid. The paper, in fact, is really interesting and really cool, and it will be in the show notes on the website. So if you go to squamatespod.com, you can go to the show notes, and then you can see the paper, which is really cool. So let's move on to everyone's favorite uh, segment of the show. It's their favorite just because of the name, which is... Works in progress, which is where we talk about what we've been up to for the last month since the last episode, but not really since the last episode re- um, released, rather when we recorded the last episode, which happens some week and a half before the episode is released because we need some time. We need a buffer. Because <laughs> we're only human. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. We can't do so much. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to go to the JMIH conference but, but did, did not did not did not make it <laughs> um for a number of reasons which i won't go into um but i wish everyone well there i hope everyone's having a great time yes so for those who don't know the jmih is the joint meeting of ichthyologists ugh, and herpetologists yay <laughs> and um <laughs> Great, now we're going to get hate mail from ichthyologists. Uh, I do apologize, ichthyologists. You, the dead things fish, that you study are Dead are fish in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> Theoretically, I mean, the ichthyologists are like the physicists of biology. Okay. You know how physicists say, well, everything, all biology is really just applied physics. Ichthyologists are like, herpetology is really just terrestrial ichthyology. So <laughs> they're a nightmare, a nightmare. Oh. Um, but it's a it's an annual meeting that is usually happens in the states. Although I think the next one's in Mexico. Am I correct in thinking that? Those could, yeah, anyway. could be. I, yeah. I'm, uh, I, I was. I don't know. I live an hour away from where where they're having it right now, which is why I wanted to go. But ah. uh, but yes. yeah, yeah. Sorry, everybody. Yeah. That's a shame. Um, also, this year at, at the JMIH, there's been all kinds of really cool um, uh, meetups. There was a Herpers meetup, I guess, and some other uh, interesting ones that we all were not able to attend, alas. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, so. Oh, well. So, I'll talk about what I've been doing for the last month. Um, I had a, a PhD student here visiting from my lab in Braunschweig in, in north central Germany. And we scanned together about a hundred, we, we micro CT scanned about a hundred uh, Felsuma geckos, so day geckos, uh, for her PhD project, which was a massive amount of work. And uh, I have also been using the time to put off all sorts of important things that I should be doing for my PhD. Uh, <laughs> so that's gone well. Uh, July is actually quite, quite open and free for me for a number of different reasons. Um, but the consequence has been that I've not been... Well, I've been productive on a, on a lot of things. I've had, in the last uh, month, I've had two papers accepted and I got two back from reviewers, which is really cool. So we've got five new species, so three new geckos and two new frogs that'll be published in the next two months or so, uh, which is really cool. But um, yeah, the just things that I really want to do. Just another Thursday for Mark. <laughs> exactly. It's just it's just another Thursday. So it's just been normal weeks for me, you know. 
all of that stuff. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's been my month. Oh, and, and today I got seven new orchids in the post, which is very exciting. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I have a few things going on. First of all, I'm going to uh, mention my book that I'm preparing that I didn't plug in last time. So I'm going to plug it in this time. So I'm working on this book about called Journey to the Mesozoic, which is a book where I will show a lot of my paleo art and it will hopefully will be out um, early next year. It's a ton of work. So I've been working no like all the time on that for like a year already and mm. uh, or more more than a year. And well, um, can I say uh, the art? The art that I've seen from it so far is incredible. Thank Stemmer. you very much. Thank you, thank you very much. We've retweeted quite a lot of it on the on on our Twitter page at Squamates Pod, plugging the show. <laughs> and I greatly appreciate it. Um, yeah. <laughs> then I also recently got uh, the uh, proofs for uh, an article about paleo artist that is going to appear soon. I will talk about it more when it actually appears, but I'm very happy because I'm in the company of great paleo artists that I admire, like um, Mark Witten and Emily Willoughby. So mm. I'm really happy and proud about that. And I'm still working on uh, those that commission about, uh, of, uh, I got commissioned to do some illustrations of Caribbean boas. So I'm still drawing a bunch of scales. I'm still working on that. <laughs> And um, I actually also got commissioned. Well, I got commissioned to do this a long time ago, but the paperwork took forever. So I just started now uh, on a commission to do, uh, to reconstruct uh, uh, frog biting midge from the Cretaceous. So I'm, I'm doing this illustration where I'm also, <laughs> aside from the midge, I'm also illustrating uh, uh, indeterminate <laughs> Alitoid frog on the background. Because uh, this is uh, Gabriel. This is really funny because you say midge, and I would say midgy, and I'm, you say anole. <laughs> no, I say anole, and you no, would say anole. Stop that! <laughs> it's, it's so funny. <laughs> well, talking about um, what well, was what's the correct way to say? It? Because maybe I'm I'm saying it wrong. Is it midgy? <laughs> I say midgies, but I've I don't never know. heard midgy before. I've, oh, it's midge. I, that's really? what I always heard. Yeah, midge. Yeah. Uh, I I am only familiar with. Well, I know that other people say midge, um, but I thought that was just Donna's mum from that '70s show. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, okay, so that's so here we are again. <laughs> Well, and to get in that subject again, um, I like I told you guys last time, I went to see that I went to the preview of the documentary about Anolis. We had all that big argument about how to pronounce Anolis. There was a big fight and all of Twitter agreed, agreed that it's pronounced Anolis. All of Twitter didn't agree. There was a huge amount of people that say Anoli and there are reasons for it, but we're not going to get into that again here. I'm just going to say that it's actually from a Carib word that is anoli, and so it should be pronounced anoli. So I went to this uh, preview of this documentary about anolis um, on the Frost Science Museum here in Miami. I got invited because I did uh, um, some um, vector illustrations that will be used for um, the website and the webpage of the Smithsonian Channel when the uh, documentary actually premieres in the fall 
and it was a really really cool um, documentary it was done by Neil Lawson who has worked with Anoldis before and he's a an amazing documentarist filmmaker and uh, the documentary talks basically mostly about um, Anoldi ecomorphs and uh, I'm, I'm guessing all of you guys are uh, familiar with what Anoldis are but if you are not some listeners are not I'm just gonna say quickly that they are a, a group a family composed of only one genus although that's a long story but we won't talk about it right mm-hmm. now. Um, uh, the most diverse vertebrate genus they have way over 400 species and um, they are distributed all through the neotropics and here in the southeastern United States also and um, so and all these are cool because among the many things that are cool about them in the Caribbean islands in the West Indies they they divide into ecomorphs and ecomorph is a term that was coined by the grandfather of Anolis, Ernst Williams, who did a ton of research uh, about Anolis in the 60s and 70s, and he described a ton of species. And he uh, coined this term to um, basically, uh, it's the concept is that Anolis species that are non, not related to each other. Converge on the same kind of ecological habits and forms. He, Exactly. They have the same habitats. They use the same habitats in the same way and are morphologically similar. So let's say that you have anolis from Cuba and anolis from Puerto Rico, even though they are not closely related to each other, they are very, very similar morphologically. And they use the habitat in the same way, um, just because of, that's the way that they evolve in each island. And it's, it's a really interesting, um, it's really interesting. So. So uh-huh. it's like a, it's are, like a Darwin's Finch situation, but like well, no, because Darwin Finch actually speciated evolved from the, the from a common ancestor in their closely related. Yeah. So oh, so this is more of a convergence thing. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. Is some an of, extensive convergence. Thing. Okay. Some and of these anolis have been separated from from each other for like millions and millions of years. Hmm. It's it's so, really it's really impressive. It's one of the best systems to study conversion evolution on on niches yeah. um, taken completely apart from evolutionary history. Yeah, and, and the, the interesting thing is like what I said, they are not related to each other, but they are they use the same habitat, the same niche, and they behave in the same way, which is, is really interesting and crazy. And sometimes yeah. you can see yeah. an anoli from one island and from the other island, they are not related, they look very, very similar. So um, the documentary talks about that. They talk about, their, I'm just gonna say very quickly that they're um, in the West Indies, there are five, uh, six types of ecomorphs, and those are grass bush, trunk ground, trunk, twig, trunk crown, and crown giant. And those are the each and only on those uh, ecomorphs look similar, even though they are not related. Um, so uh, the documentary is focused mostly on the um, on the Antilles, on the West Indies. They also focus here in Miami because we have um, anolis introduced from almost every of the, every one of the ecomorphs uh, from different islands. We we just don't have twig anolis and we don't have grass bush anolis, but with all the other Thanks. ecomorphs we have. Thanks, pet trade. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, yeah, but a lot of them are actually not from the pet trade. A lot of them have been, well, not a lot of them, some of them. Like the brown anoli came probably from potted plants and stuff like that. Mm, yeah. yeah. All, all uh, kinds of, of uh, movement of, of uh, neotropical things across the world. We, we get routinely receive banana spiders that have been brought in from, uh, from Central America into Germany uh, because bananas are coming from Central America. So, and we have frogs and stuff that also make it with those shipments into Germany. So, yeah, they're actually um, happens all the time. Yeah, there are actually lists of countries have lists of the stuff that yeah. they get in shipments, where you can see all yeah. the all the animals that they have with that. So, yeah. um, they, I, I will probably talk about this more in the future, and because uh, I yeah. would really like. To, yeah, we need uh, to do a whole episode on it actually, because um, I mean, the, so. You mentioned um, older studies, but one of the most important, probably the most important study with specific regard to this convergence between the different niches is that by uh, Lossos et al. that was published in Science in 1998, yeah. which is called Contingency and Determinism in Replicated Adaptive Radiations of Island Lizards, where they showed precisely this um, uh, across the, which, the Greater Antilles. Yeah, or and I'm Antilles and, and, and all these in Antilles. Um, I'm just gonna say also that these these ecomores only work partly in the Antilles. Um, yeah, there are some ecomorphs that are some anolis that do not fit any ecomorph even in the Antilles and in the in the mainland probably due to a lot more competition from other types of lizards, of other predators, etc., etc. Anolis behave uh, they, they don't fit mostly for the most yeah. part is yeah. ecomorphs but yeah. in the antilles i'm just gonna make a, a, a mention that uh because you guys like these false chameleons that used to be in the genus chameleolis um mm -hmm. they do not fit fit any particular ecomorph either because no they are they the fit size the of... chameleon ecomorph which yeah. is ironic no they actually <laughs> they're actually about the size of a crown giant but they may be behave a little bit more like a twig anole Anole? Yeah, so which so, is just like a, a chameleon. A crown giant would be like a like a Cuban knight anole type of. Exactly, a, that's yeah. exactly a Cuban. Yeah, so yeah. I can give you I can give you a a, a, a quick example of each ecotype, like uh, a, a, a grass bush anole. You actually have one in the mainland. Could be like anolis auratus. Then a trunk ground could be the brown anole here, the anolis segre typical uh, trunk ground and you have trunk anolis disticus it's a typical the bark anoli it's a typical uh, trunk anoli the twig anoli you have plenty of those in the in the mainland also trunk ground anoli the green anoli is a trunk ground anoli anoli anolis caroliniensis typical trunk ground anoli and then like ethan said a crown giant is the cuban night anoli anoli sequestrus is a perfect example of that you know, I, can I just interject one thing? I almost got fired from my first job at a pet store because I let loose a Cuban night anole, and it like while my boss was talking on the phone, and it jumped onto his head. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. and, and an adult one because they're huge. Yeah, it was an adult. It was I was cleaning its cage, and it it escaped my grasp and immediately jumped onto the top of his head while he was like on the phone with a supplier or something. But he just kind of like, he was angry for a bit and then kind of lapped it off. So I, got, yeah. I kept the job. But I was a teenager. That's funny. Yeah. All right. So that's all I've been up to. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, good. I mean, um, I just wanted to mention the fact that uh, a lot of these ecomorphs um, are convergently evolved, like the same sort of anolis ecomorphs appear in other groups. Like you have groups of chameleons that behave a lot like twig anoles, and you have groups of chameleons that behave a lot like uh, or you have groups of geckos rather that behave a lot like yeah. um, trunk ground anoles and I was stuff. So say, you have gecko, all of these geckos would have to be on there, and, and the, the yeah. we, we mentioned that last time. The toe pads being very similar. Exactly. Well, exactly. one of the and one of the characteristics of the of, of of the trunk anoles in part, uh, in particular is that they behave a lot like geckos and they move like geckos. If you see yes. if you've ever yeah. seen a bark anole, a bark anole moves exactly like a gecko. It goes, it, it's it's. Um, um, he holds his body close to the trunk. He doesn't yeah. raise his head. It's yeah. completely flattened against the trunk. So Exactly. Let's move on to Breaking Notes. It's the Breaking Notes. It's where we talk about the news from the last well, usually it's from the first episode, but in the last episode uh, well, in, no, other way around. Usually it's from the last episode, but in the first episode, um, we talked about all of herpetological history ever, and we didn't actually mention any of the papers that appeared uh, this year so far. Uh, so in this particular breaking news section, we're going to go through quickly a few of the really big hitting papers that appeared earlier this year in 2018. Now, I should say... Um, I did a Google Scholar search, one of those advanced searches where you give in lots of different terms with the word and in between them, and then you subtract lots of other things to make sure that you don't get any sort of de uh, uh, um, uh, like robotics sort of crap. And what it came out with is that just in 2019, because, you know, there's a lot of stuff with Mark, biomechanics. Mark, you're going to anger the robots now. I know. Well... <laughs> We're going to get angry letters from robots and ichthyologists now. Great. Yeah, yeah. Biomechanics inspired by animals is very interesting, but it's not actually studies on reptiles and amphibians. But anyway, studies that appear to have been focused only on reptiles and amphibians that are like, as it's in the title, one of these terms, um, is about 17,000 in 2018 so far. Okay? So there are shitloads of... <laughs> of papers coming out about reptiles and amphibians at, I mean, the, the rate is just astronomical. There's a huge amount of developmental stuff where people are looking at embryos. Of course, Xenopus is a big player there. Um, but there's lots and lots of stuff from uh, biomechanics looking actually at, at muscular function in animals. You've got all kinds of like vision studies, pure genetic studies. There's a huge amount of stuff. So we're sort of cherry-picking the stuff that's both um, cool and has gotten a bit of media attention and also a few other things that are probably relatively important or at least a little bit interesting. Um, so we're going to start off with the fact that there is a fossil frog. Mm -hmm. um, and not just any fossil frog because, you know, fossil frogs happen all the time. Um, but rather, there was this. Uh, I wouldn't paper. say that happens all the time, but okay. Well, <laughs> it's 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 not so ridiculous to find fossil frogs, but these were exceptionally well preserved amber fossil frogs uh, from Myanmar slash Burma, 
and uh, it was published by Lida Tsing or Ching et al. in Scientific Reports. And uh, without going into too much detail, basically, this is an Archaeobatrachian. So as you'll remember from the last episode, these are not the, um, the super advanced Neobatrachians, but it's one of the uh, part of a grade of older frogs. And uh, it belongs to the Alitoids. So you might be familiar with midwife toads, which is Alites or Alutes. Um, and, and their relatives. So it probably sat somewhere among uh, the elytoids, uh, but its position is not super well resolved. Uh, I don't want to talk about it in too much detail because it's already been talked about on the Tetrapod Cats. Uh, so you can go listen to not the most recent episode, but the second most recent episode of uh, Tetrapod Cats. And there they mentioned also a little bit about this this frog, which was quite yeah. Cool it's one. called Electrorana because it was in amber. Is that, is that is that where the name is coming from? Because of the amber, Electra. I think is so. That, yeah. 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 So just and it comes, frog it, it in come, amber. <laughs> yeah, and it comes from the same um, from the same deposits of amber that that got that amazing um, celluriosaur dinosaur tail. Oh, cool. And also the the um, an, uh, the uh, an anthornith uh, an anthornithid wing and baby yes. also yes. came from the birds. Those, and uh, the oldest gecko ever, and all of those things. So this yeah. is a, we're getting a better and better impression of what this assemblage actually uh, uh, contained, and it's where we're most hoping to find all kinds of really cool stuff. I think Darren actually talked about that in some detail in previous episodes of uh, the Tetrapod uh, Zoology podcast. Um, and on a similar note, we should talk about the stem squamate from Italy, uh, but we don't really have to because... If you go to your iTunes or whatever you use and you go and listen to Paleocast, uh, Paleocast did a whole interview with the first author, Tiago's, uh, Dr. Tiago Simoes. Um, and so you can hear actually a first-hand account of how all of that stuff went and uh, the research that went into it and stuff. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, Gabriel, do you want to briefly summarize the, the situation with the stem squamate? Uh, I mean, it's just a stem squamate that seems to be uh, allied to Cotons. Yeah. And um, it was before it was believed that it was a Lepidosauromorphs. So it just moved a little bit. It moves only a tiny bit within the tree. I mean, it it is very interesting. And it's relatively rare that any any fossils are supporting the relationship that we find with geckos. So, you know, in in the molecular trees, we keep finding that geckos are the oldest group. For a very long time, it was held that um, actually the the um, uh, the acrodonts, so the chameleons and things, uh, chameleons and agamids were one of the oldest groups. Yeah. And only recently with genetics have we seen that geckos actually fall out as one of the oldest groups of, of squamates. Um, and it's very rare that fossils support that sort of relationship. And this is one of them. So that Which, in itself is quite cool. If you listen to the first episode, you will hear that we talked about that also. Yes. 
<laughs> exactly, exactly. And went through geckos in perhaps more detail than was strictly necessary. Uh, <laughs> the poor snakes. I've had lots of complaints about the fact that we didn't mention snakes in very much detail, so we will, we do, had, uh, we will do better on that. In we the had future. no voice by the time we reached snakes. So. Yes, by the time we reached snakes, we had neither voice nor patience left. So, <laughs> uh, sincere apologies. And to prevent that happening again... Uh, we'll move on and talk about the Kittred story. Um, so you might be aware that we posted a, uh, a poll on Twitter as to what we should uh, discuss in this episode. And um, with the idea of, you know, maybe people wanted to hear more about uh, Anolis Ecomorphs, which they've heard anyway. So which, you're, which you're gonna hear more of whether you like it or not. With it. Eventually. Yes, Deal exactly. With it. Exactly. Um... <laughs> Or the Kittred situation, or um, sal- uh, 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 axolotl genomes, and the vote was overwhelmingly in favor of axolotl genomes, which was quite surprising to me. Um, but we need to anyway mention the Kittred story because it is really, really big news. So um, the gist is: there's a paper by Simon O'Hanlon et al. That was published in Science just uh, two, two and a bit months ago, I think. And it had... Okay, so there were 58 co-authors. <laughs> the last Jesus. author was... Was that just, the last just people author, who walked by the lab one day? No, no. And, I mean, these people have been really intensely involved in various different ways. I That's know many of, of the authors. Um, I, I know many of them personally. In fact, the last author... Uh, Matthew Fisher and I. So Matthew Fisher runs a, a group at Imperial College in London. Uh, he and I have danced together in Madagascar. So um, <laughs> I do, in fact, know several of the um, of the authors um, personally, and I can tell you that, uh, at least from my impression, few of them are going to have been layabouts involved in this work. There's a really huge amount of work that's gone into it because they sequenced the whole genomes of more than 200 isolates of uh, Batrachychytrium dendropatitis. So that's the fungus that causes um, uh, chytrid. So 200 isolates, that's a huge amount. And from all over the world, and essentially the conclusion of the paper was, because they did a, 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 a phylogeny, a dated phylogeny, placing where the um, where the branches of the tree go and the overwhelming outcome was that the origin of uh, of the chytrid fungus that is causing such devastation across the world um, is in fact in uh, in the Korean peninsula so people who are familiar with chytrid and the history of chytrid and where the finger pointing has been, it has been largely at Western Africa, which is the origin of Xenopus. And so, in fact, we had had a question on Twitter um, by at Dr. Owen Davies, um, who mentioned or who who asked whether this sort of the, this new realization uh, causes us to reinterpret the the role of Xenopus. Uh, but I think it's really important to sort of look at the paper and see, okay, so uh, the the chytrid that has emerged and that has been spread across the world certainly had uh, involvement in Western Africa. and and Xenopus was one of the species that was driving that major, uh, exchange of frogs because Xenopus were so involved in various different laboratory settings. So 
it wasn't just the pet trade that was causing all of this stuff to move around, um, but rather, you know, the also medicine trade and, and you know, all of, all of the globalization process, essentially, um, that has led to, to this whole um, proliferation. Wasn't, um, isn't it, Xenopus was used as a pregnancy test. Exactly. Uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, Xenopus so have huge. lots of really everywhere. interesting. Exactly. So Xenopus have lots of really interesting um, uh, properties. One of which is that you can develop, you you can um, drop a little bit of urine from a pregnant woman uh, on on a Xenopus, and it will develop its eggs. Its follicles will develop, and then you can see okay if the woman is is pregnant. Um, also, you can cut a Xenopus open mess around with its insides, throw it back in the water without, without um, uh, sewing it back up again, and it will heal very, very quickly. So Xenopus have really fast regeneration, really interesting um, skin biota. Um, but yeah, so they, they have been a really serious uh, carrier of chytrid. That does not change. All that has changed is that we now better understand the fact that um, the, at least the most basically derived so the the i suppose you could say the most um i don't want to say primitive but <laughs> the sort of sort of a a relative problem yes exactly it's very difficult to talk about this stuff again uh -huh. without a tree exactly um but basically something like the progenitor uh, to what has become the super virulent strain that has wiped out countless species across the, the planet um the the oldest one or or most basically derived one was found in um in korea or in the korean peninsula which came to me as a total surprise on, and on um, what? apparently they, to the rest of the world as well what was the where did they find it? What animal did they find oh, it? Oh, I actually don't know. I huh. do not. I Could do it be not in salamanders? Like, I was uh, going to say, is it, a, is it Hynobius? Yeah. I very much doubt that it was in a salamander. Um, I would have to go into the paper in much more detail than oh, I wait, have. Oh, wait, wait, maybe it was um, uh, Bombina. Um, it may well have been Bombina. It but... could be Bombina. Wasn't Bombina on the cover of the article? I saw the... That was the cover image uh, for the article. was on the cover of the article, which may have been involved. Yeah. But it seems to have been maybe Rana Catesbiana. Can that be? Rana that's a North American bullfrog. Yeah, yeah a that's, bullfrog. that's an American bullfrog. Yeah, yeah. So Lit I don't know. It's, it's weirdly color coded. This, 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 the figure is very weirdly color coded. I can't tell you that off the top of my head. Uh, nor, <laughs> nor do I have time right now. You're to dead to me. Details. Uh, I, I sincerely apologize that I can't give you that. We'll put it in the show notes. We can okay. put it in the All show right. notes. Right. Um, so is is still a really shitty thing, and we're bringing it all over the place. Um, and this is definitely, definitely a thing that we have done to the planet. So it's really on us. On the other hand, uh, two things to note. First of all... There has just been the massive reassessment of amphibians of the world in which three species of Atelopus, which had been declared extinct as a result of none other than Kitrid itself, have been rediscovered. So Yay. the tally of species that Kitrid has wiped out is in fact currently in a negative trend. <laughs> <laughs> Let's mention that that has happened with Atelopus before. 
Yeah. This has happened with Atelopus 4 and with several other species. This happens routinely. Um, of course, Can many, I... many of the species that have been wiped out by Kitrid are truly wiped out. Yes. There's no denying that. But... I have an Atelopus rant, just real brief. When you yes. Google the, the purple Atelopus, oh, like 99% of what comes up is a fake... This stupid, terrible digital render... That, that I want to scream at every time I see I hate it. I just can't understand how people don't see that that is not a living frog. I'm glad you're it with me It doesn't even this. have the like, right feet. Like, it's so ridiculous. I am There's so that unfamiliar. One. I don't know what you're talking about. What is this? If you purple Google Atelopus, purple Atelopus. Like, Why the are you thing Googling that, purple Atelopus? I don't know, because sometimes because I like it happens. looking at frogs, okay? It comes okay? up on Facebook and on Twitter and on all of the other things. But what, what species think are you looking for? Is, Varius? Atelopus Varius? That's the one that is uh, No, it's Atelopus um, Spumarius or Hukmudi. Oh, the, the one from Guyana. The yes. terrible purple one. Where they they post a picture of a purple rendering uh, of oh, rendering of a yes. purple frog, well, and it's not so much is, that it's a bad rendering; it's that people it's should so be able bad. to look at that and go, "Oh, that's a computer-generated image," but yeah. they don't. Yeah. <laughs> on a similar note, you know, on our website, you know, you you go to the website squamatespod.com, available to you right now. Um, <laughs> if you go to the website, you have our beautiful header, which is a picture of a bufus, an unnamed species of bufus, on the other side of a banana leaf, yeah? Mm -hmm. So often, exactly that picture is taken, but it's a plastic frog, yeah. and or a, a plastic lizard. Yes. And I don't know about you guys, but I can spot it a hundred times out of a hundred yes. if that's have a you plastic seen the, Okay, animal. all right. I didn't mean to go on a tangent here, but have you seen the tomato frog one? <laughs> no, no, I haven't there's, seen the tomato frog There's an one. image that's, that, that made the rounds. It's been around for quite a while, and it is supposed to be of a tomato frog, but it is very clearly a plastic toy. Oh, no. It's a well-made plastic toy. But I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen that passed around. It's like, look at this amazing frog. And it's like, that's a toy. <laughs> yeah, it happens all the time. People are really shit at recognizing what is a real animal and what is not. Which is part of the reason... Oh, I think I found it. Yeah, it's really bad. Oh, gosh. Yeah. All right. Sorry, listeners. Uh, we're going to talk about one other thing about the Kitrid, which is there's, that there's been another paper... There's always at least another one segment where i do that <laughs> yeah we're, we're always going to get a little bit derailed in other places that's fine there's Sorry. been another paper which i can't find the notes on at this very moment uh bear with bear with bear with nope can't find the notes at all anyway there was another paper which they showed in um in central america that the frogs had developed resistance Ah, oh, here it is. Yep. Voils et al. Shifts in disease dynamics in a tropical amphibian assemblage are not due to pathogen attenuation. Now, this was also published as a report in Science. And basically what they found was that the frogs are not dying, but the chytrid is not becoming less virulent. So sometimes if you have a parasite living on a host, it will become less virulent because it's bad for a parasite to kill its host. Yeah. But uh, what's happening here is that, in fact, the frogs are developing a better coping mechanism and are not dying 
from Kitrid that is still just as bad. Are, this these, the one that are these lowland frogs or, 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 or mountain, like cloud forest frogs? So <laughs> this was in Panama and it was at the end, toward the end. I guess it looks relatively lowland, but it was toward the end of the invasion front, which had been studied so well by Karen Lips. Yeah, so it so, should be towards the Darien area. So lowland. Yeah. So like the, the, the I, I suppose so. It does look relatively lowland. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. It's like Adelopus varius, uh, Rebo hematiticus, Sacatima alba maculata, Smilisca sila, yeah. Pristamantis redens. All of these are relatively Those are all lowland. Frogs. Lowland mid mid level species. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so uh, so there are things that are bouncing back, and it's not necessarily because chytrid is coming is becoming less bad, but rather because their microbiota are doing a very good job of coping with it. Evolution, evolution, evolution. in action. Well, not necessarily evolution, but rather um, uh, accommodation <laughs> by the various different uh, mechanisms that frogs have, which includes their extremely diverse uh, skin microbiota probiotics which is a big key word now let's talk ah, about some motherfucking cats Jimmy Lee Curtis fixed it got it who is he <laughs> what what probiotic never mind the yogurt oh thing. god because <laughs> what was the name of the yogurt commercial um yeah uh um, Activia with Activia the yeah <laughs> this won't make sense for anybody that is not from the United States no, that yeah, the non-USians among <laughs> us yeah. do not understand at all. But there is something very similar in Germany. Does not have that that link. Anyway, okay. Probiotics <laughs> are good in frogs. Good in your stomach. Uh, take them, and you might poop better. So <laughs> let's talk about some motherfucking cats, shall we? So yeah. there is this study by J. C. Z. Wojnarski. I don't know how to pronounce that. Wojnarski? Sounds like it. Wojnarski? Um, it was published at all, so it was published this year, obviously, um, in wildlife research, where they showed, relatively convincingly, in my opinion, uh, that cats in Australia alone kill two million reptiles a day. Oh, keep your cats indoors. Yes, please. Two million a day. Right, so we know that cats are a menace. We know that they're a very, very serious problem because they eat birds and they eat birds in very massive numbers. And what this study has done, what Wojnarski et al. have done, is they took a meta-study of 82 other studies, looked at all of their results, looked at, at all of the, the um, basically the percentage of cat feces that contained traces of reptile remains and from that extrapolated to how many cats there are and how many things each cat is killing. So each cat, every cat, individual cat, kills roughly 700 reptiles a year. Yeah? In Australia. And you've got a lot of cats, 2 million a day, which is insane. Is that counting the feral cat populations? Yes, that includes it feral. So it's divided into three categories. It is the the feral cats, the uh, the feral cats, the pet cats, and there's a third category, I think. 
So they, they broke them down because they <laughs> so behave differently. The working cats. cats. Urban, urban cats. cats yeah. yeah, I think it's the urban cats. So the urban cats obviously have a lower reptile availability um, and and are, tend to get hit by more cars. They have little fedoras. Uh, exactly. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody wants to be a cat because a cat's the only cat. I'm having so many right. mental Knows images right now. How to eat all of the agamids. Yeah. So, By the way, okay. you know, this is well known, and it, there have been many studies that have, I mean, many species that, island species in particular, reptiles, that have been driven to extinction by a cat. Yeah. 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 It's not good. It's yeah. really, really bad. I think. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I've seen people like, uh, like, um, uh, you know, talking about this online, and it's a very sore subject for people because people love their cats, and I understand that. And the thing is, is that no one's telling you cats are bad here. It's that you should keep your cat indoors. Yeah, absolutely. There's this, there's this culture where people. Th- feel they have to have their cats outside and that somehow keeping them indoors is mean to them or or, or yeah or you're doing something yeah. Yeah. to them when well, it's the opposite actually no because... yeah your cats are gonna your cat i mean we've had an indoor cat for 10 years and exactly. i think he's 10 years old because he's an indoor cat so. yeah my cat is totally indoors and and, and yeah. she would never no, she doesn't even want to <laughs> even if you open the balcony door and she barely goes outside she doesn't want to oh so. uh, he's been outside yeah. a couple times because you know how they get you know they'll run out and like every time he just ends up standing in the yard like oh now what like yes and by the I, way people is yeah. it is possible to teach your cat to wear a harness and you can <laughs> no it is possible and you okay. can bring it outside yeah yes, absolutely sur- supervised yeah there's yeah. loads and loads and loads of literature about this um there are so many benefits for keeping your cats inside they are much less likely to get any kind of traumatic injury especially get hit by cars they're not going to get stolen which happens remarkably frequent frequently there are basically no infectious diseases that they can catch they're not going to get parasites unless that you bring over other cats for them to play with Um, there's less stress they don't get into fights unless you keep more than one cat yeah. And in general, there's just less danger, less risk of losing your cat. It's just like, it, for me, it's a no-brainer. I mean, I understand the urge to take the animal outside because if you keep a human in a box, they go crazy. And from what I've read, uh, cats do require more human interaction, especially if it's been an outdoor cat and you decide to transition it to being an entirely indoor cat. Right. But... That's your responsibility. And if your cat is causing a massacre, the number of people I've had come up to me and be like, oh, it's so cute. My cat brings me slow worms. Uh, That's an awful thing. The cat is bringing you one of the 20 slow worms that it's killed. And you don't see that that is causing, it's really devastating the populations. So there's just no reason to let your cats go outside. Play with your cat indoors. Play, interact with the animal and it will be happy. They're not pining for going out onto the town. <laughs> pining for exactly. the fjords. Sorry. Pining for the fjords. <laughs> with the, with yeah, and li- if you let them outside, they may become an ex-cat. Yeah. With, their li- with their little fedoras. <laughs> they are no more. <laughs> <laughs> if you let her go outside, it'll be pushing up the daisies. <laughs> 
All right. And the last, the last piece of breaking newts comes to you from our correspondent on Central and South America, <laughs> Gabriel. Yeah, so it's this, really quickly, this very lo- lo- big paper about um, five new species of um, snail-eating uh, snakes from uh, Ecuador and Peru. They are uh, in the genera Dipsis and Cybon, or Cybon, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Mm-hmm. And um, the paper is 13 authors, which I thought was a lot, but it's nothing compared to the paper that Mark <laughs> mentioned earlier. So it's by Arteaga. Yeah, but for a species, bear in mind that for a species description, yeah, every time that the species name is cited, you have to list exactly. all of those authors after it. Exactly. So having 13 authors is actually something of an impediment. And we yeah. recently had a, a, a paper where we described 26 new species of frogs, and we had, I think, over 30 authors. And wow, that's crazy. all of those authors have to then be listed after. So from now on, it's just going to be Rakutu Arison et al., yeah. because it's... You know, it's it's ridiculous to list all of the names at that point, and I think that you know there's a there's sort of a there's a trend toward more of towards sort of an inflation of who you include among the co-authors. But at the <laughs> same time, uh, it makes science more inclusive, and no. I mean, I don't but want I, you to I, just I, be taking I, on I, anyone I, from down the hall. I, but, I don't know the particulars of this paper, but I'm just no, going to exactly. say when I worked as, a, as an independent researcher, I was very much against including more than four author stops. And when people <laughs> wanted to include me in a paper where I had done very little, which is what usually happens with some of these people, um, I refused <laughs> because I don't believe in that. And I think it's... Yeah, I think this is a personal a moral choice because... I uh, if I have done work on a project, I want recognition for my work. But it depends. And if on they're what not going to pay me, some all, people, of, all I'm getting out of yeah, this. Yeah, some people just give you access to their collection and they want to be there, which I don't agree with. No, that's completely ridiculous. And it happens. And, you often. know, and and also, you know, you get into all kinds of things. Like, should the technician who runs the machine for exactly. you to do X and Y be included as a co-author? Um, This is something I don't want to give you a definitive answer because mine does not gel with a lot of other people's. Um, But, you know, it's like... Or the person who collected the animal that you want to describe, who collected the animal 100,000 million years ago and haven't worked in it or even know what it was. No, No, I I have a problem with that. No, not necessarily. Those are the ones that tend to get named after people. And I really, uh, this is something that I value and it's something we're about to talk about is, is the opportunity of naming species after people in recognition of things that they have done. So which, let's get which, into the paper. Let, yes, let's get into the paper and let's mention that at the end because I'm also, I also have opinions about that. But um, okay. so this paper, you know, in what I said, there's sort of snail eating snakes, which if you know, don't know what they are, they're this really cool very slender arboreal snakes that prey primarily entirely on snails and slugs yes these are, are these are the, are these the ones that have like the the jaw Excellent. is adapted is Excellent. adapted to the the particular spiral of the particular snail and if it's Excellent. well they they're adapted to chirality they're not so adapted to individual chirality snails. okay exactly. that's the yeah left or right yeah. turning yeah. okay yeah exactly Got it. So, um, so in this paper, it deals with uh, 
the, within this group of snakes, there's the, they belong to a tribe called Dipsadini. And um, that tribe had six genera before, and now it only has four because the authors in this paper also synonymized um, Cybinomorphus with Dipsis. And one of the things that they found at this in this paper, sorry, had five genera before, not six, five, and now it's four. And um, they also found that the, this paper is mostly concentrated on species from Ecuador and Peru, but it has big repercussions for the rest of the neotropics because they do talk about um, some other species that are outside of that area. Um, and um, they also uh, redescribe a species that is particularly enigmatic and is known from very few specimens from the Andes of Venezuela and Colombia called Dipsas latifrontalis, which Harvey in 2008 had synonymized with um, a different species called Dipsas ferrana. Uh, they, this paper also mentions the first record of Dipsas variegata, which is a widespread, probably not monophyletic species uh, from the Amazon in um, Venezuela, Colombia, the Guyanas, Brazil, and Peru. And now they found that this is the first report of it in Ecuador. And the paper is, if you have the, we will probably uh, put it in the description, the links, the link to this paper. You should really read it. Mm -hmm. It's beautifully illustrated by the, the photos. The of, photographs are yeah. spectacular. Well, Alejandro Artiaga, the, the first author, is a wonderful photographer. And he's done all this amazing photograph. Uh, I do not understand how they every time get the, the snakes in the same position. Oh, there's a lot of posing. Because I do this a lot, right? I photograph a lot of snakes alive, and I cannot get them to adopt this pose. I am going to say that I'm not crazy about that position, and I'm going to tell you a little story. Um, I was talking to Alejandro and other people that he works with. He, he, he works in, um, in Ecuador. He has this thing where he does tour guides for herpers, and yeah. he did a beautiful book, if you had the chance to get it, about the reptiles and amphibians of the Mindo, which is a region in Ecuador beautiful photograph and we were in talks because he's um working on a book of the reptiles and amphibians of ecuador and he wanted me to illustrate some species that they don't have photographs because they're super rare and part of the discussion was to put the species in this position that they are using in all the photographs and i understand that from a um a continuity or concept yeah. but but to me, it doesn't look good because some species will not adopt that position naturally. I like actually most of the species won't will not adopt that particular position naturally. So That's I true. actually kind of refused because of that. I didn't like the the you know where they wanted to go. Yeah, that. I mean aesthetically, it's very pleasing and it's one of the most compact positions that you can put a snake in and still be able to see the whole animal. Yeah, so it fits very nicely into squares. But other than that, it's not scientifically perhaps super No, accurate. and I'm a big believer in my illustrations, particularly my illustrations. I like to depict animals in positions that they usually, you know, you can see them <laughs> usually. Yeah. yeah, adopt, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. so um, besides that, I'm just going to say that my I love the paper. The paper was really awesome. My only complaint with this paper, and this happens often with 
snake descriptions is that the descriptions, the actual morphological description, is very small. And the reason, I know the reason mm. for that is because most snake descriptions is, are very small, so it's very difficult to, when you write a paper about snakes, to compare it with, you know, other Oh, papers. goodness, it's extremely short. Yeah, and other descriptions of snakes uh, in other papers are also short, so you don't want to, you know, you don't have anything to compare. And that's a yeah. problem, something that happens usually in the snake description. one paragraph. Yeah, and for people that work in lizards, like me, descriptions are yeah. very long. Or in so, frogs. Uh, I'm not goodness. used to this tiny descriptions that's my only yeah. complaint but i know that they yeah. didn't you know you cannot do much about it yeah the other thing to mention about this paper is that it was quite important because they sold some of the names yeah um and they used the proceeds so they auctioned off the names and they used the proceeds immediately i thought this would take some time some weeks or months but what they did was they, they used the proceeds immediately to buy forest to protect. Um, yeah. It's, it's yeah. really cool. Which is super cool, at the same time somewhat ethically, eh. And, um, and as was mentioned, so these were, these were featured as the species of the so-called bi-week um, episode, in episode 31 of Herpetological Highlights. Um, and as they mentioned, it can some by buying up land to protect it while effective at actually protecting it sometimes um, can actually drive conservation schemes into negative money because first of all property tax increases and secondly you have to now employ more rangers to uh, to patrol a larger area of the forest so in fact it can even if you don't have to pay for the land yourself you can dramatically increase the amount of money that you have to put into the conservation scheme not that that's not something that you want to aspire to well, uh, but for some some of these things it's just untenable because it's so much money and they have so we little. also should say that you know we have to keep in mind that a lot of the forests are rapidly disappearing in ecuador oh yeah and if you don't do i mean in ecuador is probably one of the most i mean all south america is but that ecuador is very biodiverse and if you don't protect those areas in particular really quickly, then you run the risk of having an area disappear in one, two years. Yeah. 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 So um, that's really cool. The very last story of the uh, of the section is just that there is a paper published by Jeffrey L. Weinel and Rafe Brown um, in Molecular Phylogenetics and Evolution, where they described a new subfamily of snakes in the Philippines, which they called Cyclo cyclocorinae um, and what's really cool about these snakes is that they are an endemic radiation of snakes that has gone unrecognized on the Philippines uh, because of the lack of, of molecular phylogenetics which is, so this is really really interesting it means that we have another nice um, island system of diversification of a, of a single group of snakes across various different islands of various different ages so it's, it's a it's a very interesting story I don't want to go into into more detail on it than that um, but it's it's quite cool and we will put a link to it in the uh, show notes and then you can go check it out for yourself Okay, and now we move on to the next section of the show, which is hashtag herpers. Yay! Um, <laughs> so, there's something important that we neglected to mention in the last episode, which yes. is where 
or whence came the hashtag? So, uh, Ethan, do you want to fill in the listeners? Yeah, so um, the, the originator of the hashtag is a working herpetologist, and her name is Kirsten Hecht. And she goes by Hellbender Hecht on Twitter. And we'll put them the link to that, too. Yes, uh, Hecht is spelt with an H-E-C-H-T. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and she's very cool, and she works with Hellbenders. Yes, indeed. So she started, she started the movement, and then it became a, a, a movement. It became quite a big thing. Yeah. And uh, the Herper that we were featuring on this week's episode is um i i made a small pun i don't know if you guys saw my small pun on the um on the twitter earlier when i said that that it's a marvelous person <laughs> because Can't. it's professor marvelly wake damn it mark uh, a... i i thought it i thought <laughs> it was bum. brilliant <laughs> yeah <laughs> so professor marvelly wake if you go to her google scholar account you see she has uh, just over 200 papers, I think. 4,822 citations, which yields her an H index of 41, an I-10 index of 98. That is, for the layperson, she is a relatively big deal. That's a, and, that's um, a lot of citations. That's a lot of citations. That's, <laughs> that's really a huge amount of citations. She's a very, very influential researcher. And her main jelly are Sicilians. Now, Sicilians, back in the time when she was doing her PhD work, uh, which was published in uh, 1968, yeah, we knew practically nothing about Sicilians. And most importantly, we knew nothing about the way that Sicilians reproduce. And so what... Uh, what Professor Wake pioneered was doing evo-devo in these animals and looking especially at the reproductive systems and also, of course, the bizarre um, matrophagy thing. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, is this the, 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 baby, uh, the baby's eating the skin, mom's skin stuff? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And all kinds of other things, but also vertebrate anat- anatomy. So she um, went on to become a professor. She's now, I think, so she, she retired in 2003 or 2004, um, but she is now working as a, uh, a professor for the graduate school in Berkeley in California, I think, uh, in, a, in sort of an adjunct position there. Because, you know, people who really love their jobs never really, at least in academia, they don't stop until they actually stop. So, um, yeah, so she did her PhD on Sicilian reproductive anatomy. And I can tell you, I tried to look at it. It is a beast of a piece of work, uh, especially considering that at the time this was, you know, so little was known. Um, so she really, she really filled in a lot of a lot of blanks. For oh, yeah. She filled yeah. in a huge yeah. amount of blanks, especially to do with comparative uh, re- reproductive anatomy. And I'll get to that in a second. I just wanted to mention the fact that in 1972, um, she was one of the co-describers. I think there were two people on this paper. I don't have the paper in front of me. But she co-described the first evidence of Sicilians in the fossil record, which is 
really very important because we it's still today, as was clear from the last episode, um, it's still today relatively unclear what the fossil record on Sicilians really says and, and where the Sicilians fit. I mean, right. now it's becoming, it's, rel- it's relatively clear at this point in view of genomics and transcriptomics that Sicilians are in fact the oldest extant branch of, so the most basically diverged of all of the extant lineages of amphibians. Um, but the the fossil record on them is relatively scant, and so uh, that description in, in so just to give people an idea, before uh, there are only two stem Sicilians know before the Cretaceous. Just to give people an, an and this is a group that appears to have divi- divided from other um, amphibians in the Permian. So that's quite a long period of geological time without any fossils. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's very impressive. Um, and and that was very important information that she contributed in that in that regard. Now, I want to go through, and I think this is something we'll maybe do uh, more frequently. I want to go through and talk about the three most highly cited or three of the most highly cited and most significant contributions of uh, of professor wake ah, so like the greatest are, hits <laughs> which yes essentially essentially the greatest hits these are um in no particular order the Evolution of oviductal gestation in amphibians, which was published in the Journal of Experimental Biology in 1993, um, which is super cool. So in this paper, she compared the um, reproductive anatomy of frogs, various different frogs, or actually no, specifically one frog, um, which is Nectophrenoides malcomi, which has internal gestation. Yeah, so that's extremely rare in frogs. Um, and they give birth to, to fully formed froglets. And she compared that then to a salamander, which I think was Nectophrenoides occidentalis. Um, oh, no, it's Salamandra atra, sorry. The Nectophrenoides is the um, Sicilian with which she compared it. I think. Okay. No, maybe not. Dermophis. Anyway, she she compared it. Yeah, and um, and the conclusions are are, uh, really quite interesting. She basically outlined a list of the various different um, progenitors and requirements of having this internal development, and um, and what the relationship is between. So so previously there had been this idea that cold temperatures must be revolve uh, must must be involved in um in becoming live bearing well her findings completely threw that apart and rather said that it was some kind of way of coping with um challenging environments just in general um but it's it's a really interesting paper and i believe it should be available online i'm not entirely certain about that but anyway we'll link to it in the in the show notes 
Now, there's another paper um, that I want to talk about briefly, which is the reproductive biology of Sicilians, an evolutionary perspective, um, which is essentially the proceedings from her PhD work, which were published in the book The Reproductive Biology of Amphibians, which is a very highly cited book by itself. Um, and in general, this was the key paper. So I think this paper has something like 600 citations. Um, this is the paper on which we base so much of our knowledge of how uh, Sicilians reproduce. So this is, this is quite a big deal. And the third paper is uh, on the problem of stasis in organismal evolution, which was published in the Journal of Theoretical Biology uh, in 1983 together with her husband, David B. Wake. Um, so David Wake was the first author, then Gerhard Roth, or Roth was the middle, auth middle author, and uh, she was the last author in this paper. And this paper is very cool because, and I'm sure that this will thrill lots of people, the abstract of the paper ends uh, as follows. Stable systems can be established which transcend species borders, and the fossil record offers no evidence with regard to speciation rates or the relationship of speciation events to morphological evolution. I think that's a delightful conclusion. <laughs> so well, why don't so you, basically... Why, why don't you explain to people first what stasis is? It's not somebody's uh, name. <laughs> Yeah, so, so no, this is not, we're not talking about Stacy's. Uh, we're talking about, <laughs> would all the Stacy's in the room please stand up? Um, no, so we're talking about the idea of stasis. So stasis is a long period of essentially non change. And uh, what's important here is that we have the genetics. So uh, this is a classical. Um, argument when you the the use of the word living fossil is a classic uh, problem yeah. and this emerges from stasis so living fossil sort of presumes that nothing has changed in these animals over time because their morphology hasn't changed very much right. which is bullshit right the animal you know, the, is evolving right. immensely that, sorry the ones that that we hold up all the time you know we mentioned this a little bit last time with the uh Totara. To Atara. Yeah. But yes. it's it's true of almost everything that gets held up as a living fossil. That, um, yeah. Like Coelacanths are the most uh, common coelacanth, example. Right? Coelacanth. Yes. That, the coelacanth as it exists now looks... There's a whole history of that that yeah. you know, you're not uh, seeing. It, so this different. is the other thing. Uh, often the idea of stasis comes from a lack of a fossil record. So you, you're, you get this impression that coelacanths have remained very stable, but in fact, coelacanths are remarkably diverse when you look at the more complete fossil records that is available today. Right. Um, but if you look, people talk about dogfish all the time, dog sharks, um, and they talk about uh, especially horseshoe crabs, and these are supposedly all living fossils. Well, no, they're not. What's happened is that these animals have continued to evolve but it happens that their morphology is not one of the things that is being super selected against right their immune system must have evolved because otherwise they'd be extinct right and a lot of times it's just the external morphology because sometimes even the internal morphology is, is, is very different 
Yes, exactly. You can have these huge rearrangements um, without resulting in any kind of external morphological changes or very subtle external morphological changes that you might put down to some kind of phenotypic flexibility. Exactly. so yeah, this this paper I thought is it's really um, really significant, really really interesting. I unfortunately haven't had time to read it in any um, significant detail, but essentially what they outline uh, that was a bit of a weird pronunciation. What they outline um, <laughs> is that the the organisms themselves are perhaps like the the many things about the organisms are adapting. Um, but stasis in morphology belies underlying change. Yeah, so you have all kinds of changes. So, so to read further uh, earlier on from the abstract, despite much evolution at the level of alizymes, proteins such as albumin, and DNA, morphological evolution has been slow and is concentrated over relatively short spans of time. This is called punctuated equilibrium. Right, so punctuated equilibrium is basically stasis in morphology, and then suddenly you have a big change, and then you get a new, a new stasis. That was uh, so the popularized by Stephen Jay Gould, right? I believe so. Yeah. So Stephen Jay Gould is a a genius in terms of creating <laughs> nice well, I'm ways just thinking back of and expressing. I think that's the, that's where I heard things. of it. You know, where I yeah. you know yeah. Me too, originally, yeah. yeah. I heard of it when I was about eight years old and I was listening to essays by um, by Stephen Jay Gould. Yeah. And then I learned about it also in university in a somewhat different context. Um, so what they say, one of the, the main conclusions is that essentially the ability of the organisms to, um, to cope with changes around them um, has a lot to do with their you know phenotypic flexibility and the fact that things that are going on inside are sort of adopting um, or, or or are accommodating these various different changes that are happening. So um, it's a really cool and really interesting paper and definitely one if you're interested in this sort of uh, problem of morphological evolution, macro evolution in particular, and the problems with the fossil record. This paper is definitely one that you should read even if it's from 1983. So, it's a good, um, year. It's a good vintage. It's it's a very good vintage and um I I think that so so together with um Professor David Wake, Professor Marvelly Wake, the two of them have published a huge number of papers together. Um, many of which are extremely highly cited, and they are um, not just highly cited because they're famous people, but they are famous because of the great research that they produce. Um, and uh, Professor Wake in particular, Professor Marvely Wake in particular, has been a very significant hashtag herper. So now it's time to talk about the main central episode topic. We finally now that made we've it already here. been talking. <laughs> yeah. We're doing a really good job of keeping on schedule. There have been some interruptions, as you might have noticed from the editing, but we are currently at one hour and 40 minutes of of recording. So our one hour, 30 minute schedule is going brilliantly. It's great. Um, (laughs) So um, by popular demand, we're going to talk about axolotl genomes. Ethan, do you want to tell us a little bit about axolotls? The best salamander? Yeah, sure. Um, so 
they are from Mexico City, uh, the lakes and canals uh, surrounding Mexico City, Lake Xochimilco, Xochimilco, which I am, yeah. yeah. Want to say that? Xochimilco. Xochimilco. Yeah. Um, and uh, they are mostly extinct in the wild. I think the last survey that was done a couple years ago, they found like one male. They found zero. They so found... The, the, there, was a st- there was a survey for a, th- a three or four month survey, I think in 2013, where they found zero. Yeah. And then someone happened to find two and sent pictures in. Yeah. Uh, in a different channel. So this is this is down in in 2000 or 1998 I think was the the first of the surveys where they really did a quantification of the number of individuals. Uh, it went from something like um, yeah uh, two uh, from from like 10,000 individuals. Oh no, here it is. 1998 they found 6,000 individuals. 2003 they found 1,000 individuals. 2008 they found 100 individuals, and in 2013 zero. Yeah. Uh, and then two wild ones were found in canals. Uh, it's in, in, it's bad. Yeah. It's very bad. Uh, it's partly it's not a good situation. Pollution. It's introduced uh, tilapia fish. Yeah, we should say that this is basically in Mexico City. Yeah, one of the most densely cities on the planet. One densely the most, populated cities. One of the most on, polluted on the cities in the planet. And one of the most polluted, of course. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Delightful. They were they were really important to. I just want to briefly touch on uh, culturally. They were um, the word axolotl comes from Nahuatl, which is the Aztec language, um, and it's derived from the god Xolotl, uh, who was the god of deformity and death and destruction and uh, twin to Quetzalcoatl. And it's the same root as the mm. Sholo, where they get the, the Mexican hairless dogs. Same same mythology. Um, some Very evidence, interesting. Some evidence that it just might have been a word for, for monster, but also uh, Sholotl as a god was, was sort of tied to those dogs, too. So there's some people who interpret that as meaning that they were, that it means water dog, which is interesting because we also have yeah, things like mud, mud puppy and water dog. <laughs> uh, so oh, it's for funny a similar how for a similar neotenic salamander. Yeah, yeah. So huh. in- interestingly, um, there's some evidence so that 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 word that axolotl is you know I'm saying it the anglicized way there, but that uh, that it might have just meant something like creature because there's an account by. I think it was. I think it's Montezuma's men saying that they they were calling um, the conquistador horses axolotls as it just because it's just a an, a word for monster, you know. And do we that's know? Really cool. Do we know how that really was uh, originally uh, pronounced? Because I know how to say it in a, Spanish. A, but well, the yeah. So the X sound is a is like an S C H sound. Okay. So it will be but like axolote. Yeah. Okay. Right. Hmm. As far as I can tell, I'm probably still saying it wrong, but um, but yeah, it's not. You know, we say axolotl in the states here, but that's totally not. Yeah, and, yes. and in Spanish, yeah. the word is ajolote because it's uh, with the X is pronounced as a J, so that's why we say Mexico instead of Mexico. Right, right. Hmm. Um, 
So I just yeah. wanted to I just wanted to give a little bit of a nod of the head, and this is also a big part. You know, the mythology of it was always something that was really interesting to me about them, and it's a big part of why I based a whole comic series that I draw on that. But you still haven't really plugged properly, so now's your chance. Yeah, do, so do the thing. I do a comic. It's called Black Mud Puppy. It's at blackmudpuppy.com, and it's about the Aztec god of the dead, Xolotl, trapped in the body of a axolotl. Uh, and forced to do good deeds against his will <laughs> is is how I would summarize it. Um, very good. Um, yeah. So it's so something that interested me. In fact, the very first time I ever saw that was in a well-known book on the a Guide to Their Care by um, Peter Scott, who, like, it opens with a picture of the Aztec god Xolotl and a little description of where they're from and stuff like that. So that that was how I was introduced to that, probably around eight years oh, ago. Oh, yeah, cool. Um, oh, nice. Um, I just wanted to mention about the discovery of Axolotl yes. uh, to Western science. Yep. That is to say, not to the native Aztec people who, of course, knew about them for... I mean, they had been essentially... Uh, as far as we can tell, using them in religious practices for a very long time before. We know, well, we know um, they definitely ate them. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. So they certainly ate them. But um, the first specimen that was collected to Western science and brought to Western science was collected by uh, Alexander von Humboldt. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alexander von Humboldt is a really... I learned this from the Wikipedia page, if I'm honest. <laughs> um, but Humboldt is a very significant um, uh, figure in terms of biogeography and in terms of understanding of the world in yeah. general. Well, he's there is a beautiful biography yeah. written by Andrea yeah. Wolf, in, uh, published in 2015, which I think won the Costa Book of the Year Award or Biography of the Year Award. It is gorgeously written. I unfortunately have only read the first uh, few few chapters, um, but it it. It's basically her retracing his steps on his various different explorations, especially in South and Central America. Yeah, but Venezuela did a, a big part of his research. Yeah, yeah. And um, that book is, is not only gorgeous to look at, but it's also very, very entertaining and interesting to read. So if you're curious about Alexander Humboldt, go pick that up. But I think it's really cool that this German guy was just hanging, happened, happened to be hanging out in, in Mexico, apparently. Actually, the, and, the, the, uh, just a side note, the, the German center in Caracas, in Venezuela, is the Humboldt Center because of Humboldt. Of course it is. Yes. <laughs> yes. There were national days of mourning or international days of mourning across the world when Alexander Humboldt died. I was going to say, um, he's, he's another one yeah. that's sort of like Cope in that there's like a ton of stuff named after him. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. But I, f- I think probably, I would even wager to say more deservedly so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Very cool. And you've also found a thing about the the hybridization and the, and the albinism, right? Yeah. So this is a really cool thing. So the the fact that we have albino axolotls is because of a experiment that was done, um, and I have the paper. Uh, it was a paper for the Journal of Heredity, mm-hmm. um, Humphrey, and it was done in the '60s. They actually found a wild individual of an albino tiger salamander and they were using axolotls in their lab they had leucistic individuals which means they were white with black eyes they didn't have any true albino axolotls uh lacking pigment entirely so they 
actually hybridized that individual with their population of axolotls, and that is the whole reason we have albino axolotls today. They are all derived from tiger salamander yeah. hybrids. Yeah. This uh, so it's important to know that tiger salamanders are Ambystoma tigrinum. That is, or Mavordia. They are depending they on. Are, yeah. Yeah, but they are, they are also a member of the same genus, the, the genus Ambystoma. Yeah. Uh, but unlike the axolotl, they do not remain neotenic. Um, Always. So, so they, so, I know they, they, they do, Yes, they, there are populations yeah. that, that remain neotenic, so this is a bit of a weird thing. Yeah. But axolotls are famous for the fact that they are neotenic. That is to say, they retain uh, juvenile features, such as gills, etc., and they uh, breed, they reproduce in this um, juvenile sort of body shape correct me if i'm wrong because i've heard this but i'm not sure um i heard that uh, axolotls remain neotenic even when conditions are i mean even when they are faced with conditions where they would have to uh metamorphose well no in the wild you mean yeah i mean so they are uh they are capable of metamorphosizing even Yes, I mean I you can induce metamorphosis. There's a whole song about this. <laughs> yes, there is. You know, it goes um, something along the lines of, uh, "I used to be an axolotl. I did what axolotls do. I breathed through gills. My skin was mottled. I know you don't believe it's true, but then one day I found a bottle filled with salamander goo. I drank a little, then a lotle. I necked the whole ungodly brew, and now." I'm a Marachi salamander. <laughs> la, la, so la, salamander la. goo is <laughs> is uh, would be thyroxine hormone. Yes, <laughs> and there's a whole bunch of nineteenth um, century, I think, studies on that where they injected them with that, and they basically yes. turned into. Something this very happened all remarkably early in the study of these salamanders. So uh, the, the first specimens brought to European science was toward the end of the 18th century. Yeah, so 17-something or other. And then there were people working on them. Yeah. And, uh, and, and very quickly they found out that they could induce... Um, they could induce this metamorphosis. They could also uh, cut off limbs and get them to regrow limbs. And um, there's all kinds of stuff that they could do. And this very quickly established axolotls as a model organism um, because they're very easy to breed. And because they have uh, translucent or transparent eggs, which means that you can look at their embryos very easily. Uh, and also you can cut their limbs off and they will grow them back. And in a sense, they kind of keep acting like embryos even as they <laughs> hatch out. And yeah, mature, exactly. Know? They have these weird properties of... Uh, so in an embryo, you can perturb one section and it might um, regenerate that section just by natural coding processes. Well, uh, adult axolotls will basically do the same and you can cut out bits of not just their heads and uh, not not just their arms but you can also cut out yeah. for example 
eyeballs and bits of their brain, and they'll also regenerate those. And you can readily transplant those organs from one individual to another. I didn't know about the whole head. I have the. Uh, I, I didn't have it that. with me, but I have the paper. That's another one of those papers that I have on my phone. But no, I, I think um, Ethan said the whole hand, right? No, the whole head. Oh, no, the whole head. The there head. is a paper. Yes, they transplanted an entire head onto another one. It's right in the middle of it, right on the side. The you know the side of its body. Oh, and I see. They they put a second head. Not they didn't replace the one head. No, they t- yeah they took oh, a whole okay. other head. Yeah. Well, even that That's is really crazy. funny. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that this demonstrates is the fact that they're basically able to recode where their where their nerves are are going because you can transplant the eye from so so you could destroy the eye on the one salamander and take from another salamander its eye and place it on the front and essentially what you expect is that it has something like a glass eye. Uh, and that never regains functionality. But in these salamanders, it regains 100% functionality. It becomes, it becomes completely integrated, which means that the nerves are somehow finding their way back to the brain, which is ridiculous. And that's, that's crazy. bananas. Yes. So these, <laughs> these shits are bananas. Um, um, there, and uh, Yeah, I just wanted to mention, you know, you mentioned the, um, the bring, bringing them over in the, in the 1700s. But the yeah. most of the axolotls that exist in captivity today are descended from the group that was brought to the Paris Botanical Gardens in the 1860s. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that was... Um, I'm, just, I'm just in the process of confirming that I'm right with my 1700s thing because I... <laughs> well, I, yeah... Um, so this regeneration thing happens only in, in axolotls or in other ambistoma as well? It does happen in other ambistoma, and in fact it happens in other salamanders too, but it is extremely well documented in axolotls, and I think because of their, um, their, their neoteny, I think is also part of it too. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think anybody's studied as much. I mean, you know, there are other, there are definitely other neotenic salamanders in North America, like mud puppies, and they're obligate. Uh, mm. They can't be induced to, to metamorphose, and there is no terrestrial analog to to them. So, I th- I think I I misspoke earlier. I'll just do a correction really quickly. Um, I think Alexander von Humboldt collected them in the early 1800s and not the late 1700s. Okay. Um, but those were only scientific dead collections, and it was not until those specimens came to Paris um, that they were established as. Yeah, as I laboratory. had I had 1863 as the year, which yeah. would make sense. 1863, with, 1864. Yeah. Would make sense as far because that was like the height of the aquarium boom. Yes. 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 This makes sense. Uh, I, I had I had misread uh, something from That's the right. paper, and uh, yeah, good. Okay, so the other thing is very important information to share about salamanders and why we're talking about them. So, so the deal on Twitter was basically we'll talk about axolotls and especially we'll talk about their genomes. Now, salamanders have big fuck off genomes. <laughs> you and I. Uh, we have 
a genome size of 3.1 picograms. This is in a gamete, okay? So that's C, that's the C value. Yeah, so the number of picograms of DNA, which correlates to the length of the DNA, the, the picograms is a measure of weight, of mass, obviously. Um, so humans have a, a, a C value of 3.1. Now, salamanders have a C value from 10.12 at the very smallest to 120. <laughs> okay, so the smallest salamander genome is more than three times larger than the human genome. For reference, frogs, all frogs range from 0.95 picograms to 13.4 picograms. Okay, so basically all salamanders or almost all salamanders have larger genomes than all frogs. Do we know a reason for that? Yes, and that is one of the things we're going to get to. But basically, the main reason for this is because they have a shitload of repeating elements. Hmm. So you, there, there are features of the genome that behave in a way that you could call selfish. And uh, essentially what they do is they, they will copy themselves out, or they get copied out, they make a copy of themselves, and they insert it somewhere else in the genome. And if you imagine one does that once, and then you have two copies. Now two do that twice, and you get four copies. And now four do that each four times. You have eight copies. And you have, uh, not, not eight copies, sorry, 16 Six copies. copies. You have exponential growth of this sort of repeating Look, he's element. a biologist, okay? Just, you know. I'm a biologist, I'm not a mathematician. <laughs> you, you have exponential growth. And that exponential growth can lead to a whole lot of shit building up inside your genome. And so the result of this is that we have huge introns and, and huge intergenic regions, which is to say, so introns are basically non-coding bits of stuff inside genes, and intergenic regions are just the regions between the gene, the coding regions. Um, and these things are super long, and not only are they super long, but they also repeat a lot. Now, if you know anything about how genetic sample, uh, genetic sequencing works, you know that when things start to repeat, the sequencers have a huge amount of problems because they can't tell how many times they've seen this code and eventually they have a sort of existential crisis and crash. Okay, so that has stopped a lot of our ability to actually sequence um, salamander genomes until now <laughs> so the the paper that i want to talk about is by sergey novolishov et al this one has i don't know one two three four five six seven eight nine ten about 15 18 authors something like that and this paper was published in nature uh in february of this year and i must say having read it it is my perfect idea of a nature paper for a number of reasons. Uh, but the main reason is that they just keep punching. It's just crazy. It's just like, okay, well, the first thing we did was we sequenced the entire genome. And then 
we resequenced part of it because we wanted to check that the bit that we'd sequenced was correct. And that's now a method that we're establishing, and other people can use that method. Hmm. And then we went fishing for genes within the genome. Uh, but it actually, in fact, in order to fish for genes, you had to annotate the genes. So we made tissue-specific transcriptomes from 22 different tissues and produced nearly 200,000 annotated genes, that is to say 99% of all eukaryotic genes known, which align perfectly to our beautiful assembly. And then we looked at these uh, gene regions. We looked at things that were related to development and all of that stuff. We weren't quite satisfied. Uh, and so we did experimental tests where we knocked out different genes with uh, TALEN, which is something I'd never heard of before, but is essentially just a way of cutting little bits into the genome, and CRISPR, which I imagine many of our listeners will have heard before, which is also just a way of cutting little bits into the genome. We pr produced transgenic salamanders, crossed them, and made mutants for the gene that these salamanders are missing, and got them to look exactly like mouse mutants. So this is basically... I imagine that something like 10 years of work have gone into this paper. It is stunning. Um, so, can I just... Very hard to understand if you don't know a lot about the, the genetic-y stuff. Brief um, aside, uh, yeah. just to talk about transgenic axolotls, because that's also a thing and has been for some time. Uh, okay. I don't know... I, I forgot to mention that before, but not only do we have, you know, morphs where people have done albinos and leucistics and all these other things, but we also have transgenic axolotls that were developed, I believe, to study specifically uh, yes. lim limb regeneration, Probably. where they yeah. put jelly, yeah. they put um, GFP. Oh, yes. And so now we have axolotls that... They glow in the dark. They glow in the dark. <laughs> I have one. Very cool. GFB cool. is oh that's that's really cool. It's relatively rare, so you can get that in fish as well. You can get GFB fish, uh, but yes. they tend to be not treated super super well. Um, yes. But that's really interesting. So trans transgenic is is um is a very cool thing to do. Not necessarily something I would recommend for pets, uh, but it allows us in terms of Evo Devo, uh, which again is a great song if you like acapella music. Go no. to Acapella Science and I, look up the Evo Devo song. I like GMO so pets. Good. You know, I like. I <laughs> yeah, G <laughs> these are indeed GMO pets. All pets are GMO. Um, that's true. That's <laughs> that, <laughs> to some extent. I, I, yeah, I guess that's true. Not necessarily wild pets, but um, if you you know first first generation wild caught animals. <laughs> um, so I basically just flew through the methods. I wanted to go through them in, in slightly more detail because what they did is very cool and is a great way of overcoming these problems. So this is, this is the part where the science gets really intense, okay? So bear with me. Um, there is a sequencing method. So you might be familiar with Sanger sequencing, which is just your bog standard. You sequence, so you, you use a primer, which is basically just a selector, um, to choose a bit from the genome that you want to sequence, and you just sequence that bit, yeah? But if you're interested in the whole genome, you have to use a different method. So um, very popularized in recent times has become uh, Illumina, which basically um, cuts the genome into little tiny fragments, 
and then sequences the little tiny fragments, and then you overlap them all, um, and you're left with a scaffold that's produced from all of these little overlapping fragments. Now, the problem with Illumina is that the segments that Illumina breaks it into are something like 250 base pairs long. Now, if those 250 base pairs are just ATG, 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 which is what happens in these, uh, these genomes with their ridiculous number of, um, of these what are called long terminal repeat retro elements, which is a fancy way of saying repeated bits of, of um, sequence, um, is that you can no longer align things. You can't tell how long that ridiculous repeat is because you have so many different bits that are just repeat, especially if it's all the same bits and they could be distributed all across the genome. And this is where an alternate uh, method comes into play. And that alternate method is called PacBio, which stands, I think, for Pacific Biosystems, which is a company name, but they produce a, a machine and the difference between this machine and what Illumina does is essentially it, it, um, it produces what are called long reads. So whereas Illumina produces these things that are, I think, 150 or 250 base pairs long, um, what PacBio does is produce tens of thousands of base pairs long um, and uh, per run, and then you get lots and lots of those. And it's much easier, obviously, to overlap the, the pieces when they're so much longer. And especially it helps you to cope with the ridiculously long tandem repeats that you get. Now, <laughs> I can hear people being like scratching their heads and saying, why then would you keep using the shittier smaller pieces? Well, aside from the fact that they're much cheaper, the error rate of PacBio is quite considerable. So it's actually somewhat higher than most people would necessarily call uh, tolerable. So, so the small bits are acting like error checks? It's checking Exactly. Okay. So that's exactly what they did. So they, they first sequenced to what's called... Thir what, what, the, the technical term is 32 times coverage. So basically, every, any individual base pair on the... Of, of the gene genome is going to be uh, is covered on average by 32 separate reads, okay? And then they reconstructed that into contigs. Contigs are basically just assembled bits of genome, so assembled sequences. You make them into, you collapse them into a single sequence. A string of contigs is called a scaffold. So you make these contigs, which is essentially an important thing about a contig is that it, it's agreement across all of these different, um, uh, all of the coverage, all of the individual raw reads. And then what they did is they did an Illumina sequencing uh, of the same thing, and they used that in order to correct for errors across the entire sequence. And it looks like it was extremely effective. And they've published this method along with the, the thing, and they've called it Marvel. Um, and this is now a method that you can use if you want to sequence a very, very large genome that has lots of tandem repeats. It looks to be extremely effective. And then just for good measure, they took from various different tissues of the body, so 22 different tissues of the body, they sequenced 
tissue-specific transcriptomes for every one of those tissues. Now, that is a ridiculous amount of work. I mean, enormous amount of work. Not just to, sequence, to, to, to extract all these things and sequence all these things, but to assemble them all. It's, it's weeks and weeks and months and months and months of work. And uh, the fact that they got all of these genes is just spectacular. Uh, they were able to annotate their assembled genome. The, their assembled genome, by the way, is not in the way that you might think of it. It's not consisting of various different chromosomes, um, but it's rather a, a number of different scaffolds that they have not been able to build finally into chromosomes because they tend to end with these sort of long repeats and you don't know if you can now put them together or not. Maybe they are one chromosome, maybe they're not. Um, but they got, in the end, 23,251 of their genes annotated, which is ridiculously good. Okay, so what did they find? Aside from the fact that these... So, so they were able to quantify 65% of the axolotl genome is junk. It's repetitive junk DNA. It is these, these um, retro elements that do what I said before. They get transcribed out and they transcribe themselves back in somewhere else. And then you get two copies. So they basically duplicate themselves. And 65%, that is six human genomes worth of DNA <laughs> per salamander, is just repeats. It's just nonsense. It's just nonsense. And this is, uh, this is because of this sort of exponential growth pattern that these sort of things exhibit. Now, what's really cool is that for the genes that, uh, that are really important to these salamanders, and we've said already, these salamanders put a lot, a lot of pressure on or importance on being able to regenerate bits of their bodies. They're extremely good at this for who knows what, what reasons. Um, but when you look at the developmentally associated genes, and they did this first with one of the Hox genes. Now, Hox genes are genes involved in patterning the body as it's developing. Okay, And they looked at Hox A, and they found that actually the, the intron, so, so the introns, are, as I said before, are bits within the, the, the um, basically the script of the DNA, bits that gets excised out, cut out, and thrown away. Um, in other vertebrates, you have extremely, you have relatively large introns inside the Hox genes, whereas in the axolotl, you have the opposite. You have, in fact, very strong conservation on the intron size in Hox A. And then they looked across all of the other developmental genes and they found the same thing. So, in fact, with, with very few exceptions, it seems, um, the developmental genes are somehow having um, the length of their introns restricted. And probably what's going on there is that because they need to be able to use these things e effectively, yeah. and in order to use them effectively, you have to have fast transcription. They're very pared down. Exactly. If, you, yeah. if you're a transcription thing, so if, if the... Basically, what's happening is is your um, all all of the various different mechanisms involved in transcribing DNA 
um, which must first unwind the whole thing. It has to be read off into an RNA and all that stuff. It becomes extremely time-consuming if you've got all kinds of crap in the middle. And so there seems to be some kind of, uh, at least on these developmental genes, there's some kind of restriction on how much crap can go in the middle uh, before it becomes developmentally uh, untenable. It's very, it's interesting. So you have quite strong selection there. That they would be, so, they're so, it's so laser focused on being able to regenerate, you know, the regenerative ability, but. Isn't that interesting? But I, I think maybe this is also is. our observation. I think this is an observation bias thing. I think it's because Could we're be, most yeah. interested in understanding the way that these uh, these salamanders are developing that we're looking specifically at this problem. Right. I wonder if you were to look at things that are associated, for example, with oxygen metabolism or, or you know, the oxygen um, uh, pathway or the light pathways you know all of the things happening with uh, with their light perception stuff uh, a couple, I wonder can, if you can also I just add a couple sort of things in things. having bred axolotls mm -hmm. a bunch oh yeah sure yeah uh, that there's definitely a component as goes oxygen with their gills the gills get much fluffier in different levels of oxygenated water oh interesting they get yeah. larger um, and also I had a couple from a batch a, a little while ago that developed without eyes entirely. <laughs> oh, cool. And I bet you and could find you out which... You haven't found that which situation with that the gills in other, in other salamanders that you keep, just with axolotls? No, I think that's a neotenic thing. Uh -huh. It seems like the, the gills in lower oxygenated water, they seem like they get a bit fuller, um, to ca I would assume, to catch more. That's. So you, I wonder if there's a point at which that becomes determined and you can no longer change it. Right. Yeah. I but don't know. This is the sort of thing that that Evo Devo becomes quite uh, interested in. Yeah. So, um, yeah, certainly that's very interesting. I just wanted to point out that the next thing that they did by looking at the genome was they went then and looked at Pax three. Pax three belongs to what are called pair box genes. They're a little bit similar to Hox genes in that they are. Um, they're transcription factors. So transcription factors basically are the things that turn on and off genes. Yeah, so they come along and they're like, oh yeah, let's let's transcribe this bit. So um, PAX3 is completely missing from the axolotl. Now, if you knock out PAX3 in a mouse... And you make it homozygous for that knockout. So it's minus minus, yeah? The mouse does not develop. It dies. So, <laughs> essentially, the salamanders have been like, fuck it. <laughs> I don't need this. <laughs> At some point, they were like, I don't need this extremely, extremely important gene I can do just fine without it. I can just cobble together <laughs> so, these other uh, bits of my genome. Which is this bizarre. Is very interesting because I want to know why they're doing that. Like, what is the yeah. reason that's occurring? Is, is why there, would you get is rid that of a this crucial to gene? That, it's a response to something that's going on in their environment? It's a, it's a, uh, it would be, you know, it'd be interesting to see this done on other neotenic salamanders and see if it's the same. That's what yeah. I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the stuff that's coming. Now that we have yeah. this paper out, you know, this has really set the foundation for us to understand all kinds of things in salamander evolution. Imagine we don't understand the basis for lung loss 
in the yeah. plethodontids. Well, we don't even now really, we can we study don't even that. really firmly understand as of what I understand. We don't really know exactly what causes neoteny to evolve. We have ideas about that, but that's, yeah, you know, no, I mean, all kinds of all kinds of different questions can be. This is why one of the reasons I wanted to focus on this paper um, is that this is a huge step towards understanding all kinds of things in in evolutionary questions. Yeah. Um, to to sort of answer the the Pax three story, what the salamanders have done, they're like, okay, I don't need Pax three, but I do need something that's still doing something similar. Okay, Pax three is responsible in mice for um, for skeletal muscle patterning for nervous system development. Okay. Now, what the axolotls have done is they've taken another gene from the same family, Pax seven. <laughs> and they're like, well, I've lost my PAX-3. But PAX-7 is sort of similar, so I'll just use that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Which it, is really cool. I wonder, and I wonder too about how, you know, we mentioned earlier about the eyeball transplant and how it grows nerves to it. And I then yeah. wonder, you know, does that have something to do with the fact that they don't have a normal, you know, nerve pattern? It's a Good question. If they have something else going on, the question is, do these genes get turned on again be because they're relatively early development genes? They, they're still happening in the larval phase. Um, I wonder if they get turned on when you cut the arm off. Uh, that's something I don't know. It's prob that probably is already answered. This does happen um, in amphibians because they have to go through a larval stage, so they're probably already built for this kind of thing. Could be. Right, Although I'll tell you, I'll tell you though, there, there's there's a lot of weird shit that happens with amphibian embryo. Like, do you know about how the Triturus newts and how like thirty percent of every clutch that they lay doesn't make it past a certain yeah. I think it's actually fifty yeah. percent doesn't make it yeah. past a stage of development. So yeah, they lay all because these they, they have a very weird uh, genome configuration. Yeah, so it's it not can be just axolotls that. that are that are weird. Yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. If, he, yeah. if it, this has to do something with the fact that amphibians go through this larval stage, and they have to go through this metamorphosis, I'm sure that this has something to do with this. I mean, this this has there's a reason for that part of the reason for all this genetic weirdness is that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The genetic, yeah, I mean, yeah, salamanders genetic. in general are just very, very strange. Which makes um, you wonder also why frogs don't have a neotenic... I mean, there are no neotenic frogs. Yeah, this is something we're hoping for. I don't know if you guys have seen the pictures recently... Of Goliath? Of that bullfrog. Yeah. yeah the, the, the Goliath. It's a bullfrog tadpole. Um, Shared by and uh, it is Aaron McGee, right? Astronomical. I don't know which who, who it was. Yeah, Do you know their the tag. I, I believe it's Aaron McGee. Hold on, hold on. I'll pull it up. Aaron McGee. She is at Afro underscore Herper. Ah, good. Yes. Uh, very very impressive tadpole. I mean, wow. I mean, gargantuan. <laughs> yeah. Yes. If there is ever going to be a neotenic frog, it's going to be that one. <laughs> that's the case for uh, Sudis paradoxa, right? Like it has this huge tadpole, and then the adult is smaller than the tadpole. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, it's a complicated issue. This is something we can talk about another time. There's, there's a huge number of reasons why frogs will never have neotenic forms. Um, and, and I don't really well, we, to and we started to go down this road once before, too. I don't know if we recorded it or not, but... I don't remember. I don't remember yes, now. Yes, we did. But, we did discuss about this. But we've this, talked yeah. about this before, where it's like it's probably some. It may have something to do with just developmental limitations that that are there. Yeah, yeah, all kinds of different possibilities. Um, now, what did these guys do? They weren't satisfied by <laughs> seeing that PAX three was missing, and PAX seven was sort of looking relatively similar to PAX three. No, they said, let's use the two sexiest methods out there at the moment, which are Talon, which I mentioned before. I have no idea how that really functions, but it's essentially just a gene editing thing. And CRISPR, which is all kinds of attractive at the moment, all over the media and all sorts of stuff, and make these transgenic mutations. They changed the mutations. <clears throat> they, they mutated these, uh, these axolotls. They got a, a morphology, that is to say a phenotype, uh, consistent with what, with what they expect from mice, which have the mutant form of PAX-3. And, uh, and in doing so, they concluded that, um, that in fact PAX-7 really is uh, filling the role that PAX-3 was filling before. So, I mean... It's just incredible. The number of methods. I, I can't imagine the price tag on this paper alone. So what you're saying okay. is that you can't envision a more ambitious crossover. This is... <laughs> this is the Avengers. <laughs> this, this is the Avengers meets Batman <laughs> meets... Uh, um, I don't know. I was trying to think of a another superhero franchise but they <laughs> frankly don't really exist um <laughs> meets lego meets lord of the rings it is um it, it is just phenomenal the amount of stuff that they put into this paper it's it's very 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 impressive <laughs> um really cool now what's gonna come next you, i hear you asking in your <laughs> curiosity well Already, there's a paper that is available as a preprint, and we will put it in the show notes. It's by Melissa Carol Keenath et al., uh, and it's on the bioarchive. And the title is Minuscule Differences Between the Sex Chromosomes in the Giant Genome of a Salamander, Ambistoma Mexicanum. Sound familiar? That's the axolotl, my friends. Now, in the abstract of this paper... I, have, I must profess I have not read the whole paper because I simply did not have time. But the abstract, they say this. Whole genome sequencing, whole genome resequencing from 48 individuals of a backcross of axolotl and salamander with in-situ hybridization were used to identify a homomorphic chromosome that carries an amexicanum sex-determining factor. Okay, so they did 48 whole genome sequences. Yeah. So, so they, so, all right, so wait, so wait, 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 wait. They, they sequenced 48 individual axolotls. Individual axolotls. Okay. Yeah, so, so not just, um, okay, so we've got the one genome, it's published, 
And immediately afterward, and you must wonder if these people knew that the other genome thing was coming, because they can't have done this without having a relatively good tool available to do it with. Um, but what the focus on here has been on, on specifically looking at the sex-determining locus in, in the basically the sex chromosome um, in Ambistema. And so they did the whole chromosome analysis. So this is one of the very few flaws that I have identified in, um, in this paper by Novoshilov at Novoshilov, sorry, et al. Is that they didn't really do the, the chromosome thing. You know, we, don't, we have lots of scaffolds, but we don't know how many chromosomes there are. And we don't know how the scaffolds are arranged across the chromosomes. But what this group of authors have done, what Kenneth et al. have done, is actually sequence the sex chromosome. And uh, from the looks of it, they have found that there's basically no difference between male and female uh, axolotls. In terms okay. of so there is like XX, in, in terms XY. of physical, well, it would be um, ZW. Uh, okay. But in terms of physical difference, there is only W specific sequences contain a recently duplicated copy of the ATRX gene, a known component of mammalian sex determining pathways. So basically, they've got one little bit, or maybe they've got a few little bits that are determining the sex. Um, and you can use these things, you can specifically sequence these bits of the genome of an axolotl to know what sex it has. And I don't know, Ethan, how, how easy is it to determine the sex of an axolotl? Once they're a year old, it's pretty easy. You just look for a bulge under the tail. Yeah, mm -hmm. Typical. <laughs> I mean, it's great. Yeah. There's a lot of science there, but you can just look at the... Yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> um, but it is, it is quite crazy that we've gone from, okay, we've got an axolotl genome, to, oh yeah, let's sequence 48 axolotl genomes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and look specifically at each of the... Um, at, at their sex chromosomes and, and try and find yeah. that. So I thought, I thought that was very impressive. That and, is. Um, that is. So this, it's opening whole new worlds in terms of studying um, uh, salamanders, in terms of having a reference genome, obviously, for, I mean, for salamanders, but also for amphibians. There are not that many published reference genomes for amphibians, and certainly not many that are well annotated. And what it seems to me is that these guys, you know, they've, they've managed to annotate uh, 23,251 genes. That's not bad. Yeah. So the, the biggest problem with the majority of genomes that are published is that they go poorly annotated basically forever. And without annotation, you don't really know what you're looking at. You could be looking at a paralog or a homolog or whatever. Didn't they recently also, uh, did I see that they had sequenced um, Pleurotilus waltel? Huh. Published last year even. I didn't know that. Cool. This was published in Nature Communications last year. Reading and editing the Pleurodeles Voltal genome reveals novel features of tetrapod regeneration by Eliva et al. So that is interesting because it means that, because it looks like 
there seems to be a trend. Yeah. <laughs> the PAX 3 thing is the same there, too. Is from oh, what is I'm, it? From what I'm looking at. Ah, but it says here that PAX 3 and PAX 7 are both present and functional. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Whereas it is absent from... Uh, from the delightful axolotl. What's Ooh, interesting about is them? Not neotenic, so. Uh, it's not often neotenic, but it can be. Mm. There oh, that's are, interesting. There are individuals who will, and it's not like in Bistema where there are like whole populations, but there will be individuals that retain that are that are neotenic. Yeah, but that doesn't isn't that the case with like a lot of salamandrids? Like, uh, yeah, it is. It is pretty widespread, but. Uh, it's not the same. Yeah, there are even European newts that are uh, yeah. that, well, that can. Yeah, well, that is well, one. Well, That's well, a Spanish a newt. newt. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, but I mean there are trituras, there are ichthyosaura that can be neotenic. Yes, it's very yeah, common. I think a, yeah. lot of, a lot of salamanders do that. Salamanders, because it, other salamanders not often do that. It's just salamanders. Mm. Right, but it's. I was going to say also, it's it's. Um, it's a lot more scattershot with them, whereas in Ambistema, it's like whole populations will be exactly. neotenic, uh, or or have a, a propensity to be neotenic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's been the, the main discussion. Um, let's get on to the next section, which we couldn't do in the last episode. Uh, but we have a new section for this episode, because we've actually had an episode. And it's called... Are you ready for it? <laughs> Questions from Lizard Nose. <laughs> this is my favorite section. <laughs> this is by far my favorite section. Questions from Lizard Nose. Okay, so... We have um, uh, two questions to address, and we're going to do it in super, super fast time, because we're already a little over our expected uh, time. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and these are by, so Zach Miller, which is uh, ZMiller1902 on the tweeters, um, asked us to please mention Tetrapodophus. Uh, so there you go. And here we are. We've mentioned we, it. We, we've mentioned it. <laughs> Tetrapodophis. Yeah. Tetrapodophis. No, I mean, even yeah. if, we, if we wanted, we don't really don't have time to even... Well, we, we is a really very, don't yeah. have time. It's a very fraught situation. And basically... Eh. I'm just going to say it is not a four-legged snake there. I agree. <laughs> I agree that it's not a four-legged snake. And I... So, so that's it. Yeah. Ethan, yeah. you don't get an opinion on that one. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's all right. Um, and yeah. So the, and the, second, the yeah. second one is uh, by Dr. Owen Davies. We mentioned before. That's at Dr. D-R Owen O-W-N Davies D-A-V-I-S. Uh, the first bit is... Well, no. Actually... Yes, two questions. The first one is, what the fuck is Toxicophora? That's not his actual wording. I've, I've changed that a bit. Um, <laughs> the answer is... Who knows? Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a large episode. Uh, it's pretty clear what Toxicophora is. It's basically all the things that evolved venom, but... Yeah, so it is a clade genetically, it's supported. It's a clade. Iguanians, anguids, uh, snakes... 
monitor lizards, but excludes geckos and lesser toys, exactly. which are true lizards and uh, tiggets exactly. and stuff like that. But we will talk yeah. about that. I mean, we really have to do an episode about Tectocophora because it's a exactly. big subject. That episode, by the way, will be called Phylogenetics. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, his second question was, how much do we charge per question? <laughs> well, and unlike some other podcasts. Is, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the first one's free. <laughs> the first one is free, as is apparently the second one. We're not going to tell you when we start imposing a very strong markup. Uh, we'll just, send, we'll just send you a bill. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, uh, that's and that's it for now. We we don't have more questions, or at least if we do, we've decided not to address them. So, <laughs> so um, thank you very much for listening. Again, I hope this is the second episode you've listened to. If it's not, and you've enjoyed what you've heard, then I do recommend that you go listen to the first one, because uh, we are fun to listen to i guess you seem to have enjoyed it you're here still at the end of all uh, at the end of times and um so yes thank you very much so you can follow us on the internet and i'm just going to do the whole outro just by myself so <laughs> uh ethan is at black mud puppy on the twitters on the twitters gabriel is at serpent illus both on the twitters and on the instagrams Yes. Uh, I am at Mark Schertz, and I realized in the last episode that I did not pronounce, that I didn't spell it out. And so probably if you had look, looked for it, you wouldn't have found it because it doesn't, it's not spelled the way it sounds. There's Schertz some... is spelled S-C-H-E-R-Z. There's... Or for Americans, S-C-H-E-R-Z. <laughs> I was um, going to say, there's some screen printer out there named Mark who like gained a whole bunch of followers because of you probably <laughs> yes it's, it's very it's very possible uh you can follow the podcast on basically all of the various different possible podcasting services we're not yet on spotify but i intend to rectify that soon but um yeah we're on all all kinds of different things just go look for us the best way to find us though is on our website which is squamatespod.com we are also on twitter at squamatespod on facebook the page is called squamatespod and on instagram uh, you can guess it, but I'll just tell you, it's Squamates Pod. And make sure and you follow us because we will be posting stuff in between exactly. episodes and expanding what we discussed on the episodes as well. Exactly. And we post potentially, a things. We yes. get into de delightful arguments among yeah. us about how to correctly pronounce Anola. <laughs> <laughs> More pronunciation <laughs> arguments because apparently that was really popular. So <laughs> lots of those. You could have a say in what gets discussed in the next episode. You can ask us questions. And you know what would be really nice? Would be if you would if you just go to iTunes and first of all, rate the show, tell us what you thought. And secondly, if you leave us a review, uh, we will be eternally grateful to you. Especially because Apple's sort of uh, algorithm yeah. thing makes it much, much, much easier for other people to find the show uh, who perhaps don't have the tweeters if people have left reviews. Now, I have been policing this in some detail and uh, been delighted, of course, that some people have left reviews, although I must say at least part of that was due to my own coercion of them. 
but until now, I have not found any reviews on stores, iTunes stores, other than the American store. Now, I know for a fact, because of your cookies, that uh, at least some of the listeners are not Americans. And it would be just delightful if you could leave us a review in something other than the American Apple store. Uh, for example, the British one, where we don't even have a rating. And the German one, where <coughs> at least some of <coughs> certain students who I'm <coughs> supervising should, <laughs> should perhaps leave us very nice feedback. That would be great. Uh, even if you're not one of the students that I'm supervising, it would be very, very kind if you would leave us a review. I'm sorry to beg, but uh, for people starting out, it really helps a lot. So, uh, again, thank you very much for listening to us blabber on. I hope it's not been too long. Uh, but if it has been too long, um, we're not really that sorry. I'm, yeah, because I'm not it's sorry been fun at all. for us. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's been good. And we were told, by the way, in the last episode, that people who had been uh, listening to it had been doing various things, from programming to mowing their lawn to walking their dogs to doing several commutes to work. Doing, art, to doing all people, kinds of various a lot things. People told me they were uh, drawing and painting while they were listening, so that's good. Yeah, we encourage, always, we encourage you can, that. You, you can always fast forward the parts if you don't like or something. Exactly. It's not that big of a deal. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. And as we say on the show, Hakuna Skubata. Yeah, we did a really great job of timing that. <laughs> yeah.